The most enduring message of Daniel is not that God gave Daniel and his friends increased wisdom when they refused the food of the Babylonians. It's not that God saved Daniel from being torn apart by lions in the lion's den. It's not even that God can deliver us the way he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. No, the most powerful message of the book of Daniel is a dream given to an evil king. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson number 46, A Kingdom Which Shall Never Be Destroyed. We'll be discussing Daniel 2, and I've thrown in the mix uh, Daniel chapter 7 as well, because these two dreams, that the first one that of Nebuchadnezzar and the second that of Daniel, go hand in hand. Uh, as always, should you care to email the show, have a question answered about an episode past, present, or future, contact me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Now, we're nearing the end of our first year here on the podcast, and a lot has changed. Specifically, the way that the church will do, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will do Sunday school starting in 2019 is markedly different from the way it's been up until now. So there'll be two Sunday school classes per month starting next month. And uh, so we had 48 lessons that we were working from in 2018. And the way, uh, the way this will work in 2019 is, is very different. But the way we'll do things here on the podcast is, is sort of similar. Uh, I'll still release a weekly episode, and I will tie it into what we're studying probably from the, the two weeks before a lesson, we'll be studying that lesson coming up. And uh, for me, it was, it was not... Uh, uh, some people have asked me, you know, do, do you feel like your podcast will be less in demand uh, because Sunday school will be held less frequently. And my answer is the exact opposite. I feel like this, the desire that I had to start the podcast Gospel Doctrine was very much in line. I was very much being prepared, uh, at least in my own life, to have a, have a gospel study program that was more home-centered. And so I hope that uh, those of you who have been listening, I hope you'll see it the same way. And as we go into a new curriculum that you will take the opportunity instead of um, trying to listen to something that will correspond exactly with what you're reading in church, that you will take the responsibility to inform yourselves and to study at home uh, even more seriously. And and I guess I guess the way I would put it in sort of school terms is everything now, not everything, a lot more is extra credit rather than being required course material. And nevertheless, we're expected to do, um, we're not expected to be commanded in all things. And so we've all been prepared. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast, you've been prepared as well to have a more home-centered gospel curriculum in your lives. And I hope that uh, not only will you continue to listen, but you'll continue to tell your friends about uh, gospel doctrine so that we can all study at home together and have a home-centered, gospel-supported, church-supported gospel study. Well, uh, that... That question goes right along with what we're talking about today. Um, you, 
the the notable and the the most memorable stories from the book of Daniel are the ones that we discussed last week. If you remember, we discussed how Daniel and his friends re- refused the Babylonians' food, and then at the end of the year, they were uh, they were wiser than everyone else. The answers they gave were better. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the the Babylonian names of Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were they were thrown in a fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel, similarly, later on in the kingdom of the Persians, uh, the, the decree went out that only Darius, the king, was, uh, was allowed to be petitioned, even in prayer. And Daniel, of course, continued to pray to Yahweh. And when it was discovered, he was thrown into the lion's den and miraculously saved. These are the, when we think of Daniel, these are the stories that we remember. And yet tucked in there and given its own lesson, I think appropriately so, in our Sunday school manual, is the chapter Daniel 2, the second chapter here where uh, Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to spend the, our entire lesson on this dream, and, we're, and then I'm going to refer briefly and a few different times to another chapter, Daniel chapter 7. And so let me give you a brief introduction to both of these chapters, and then we'll go into detail. Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he dreams of this large statue, and the statue has a head of bronze and a, and a chest of silver, and the statue is made up of several, several different metals and materials, and then uh, he, uh, and only Daniel can interpret what this dream means. And it ends up, the meaning ends up being that the different materials are different kingdoms that will come across, come upon the earth. And then the stone, this, this rock that is cut out of the mountain without hands, topples and destroys the statue and then fills the whole earth. Daniel chapter 7, it, by contrast, is a vision that Daniel himself has. And he has told the interpretation of this dream. And instead of several different materials, Daniel sees four different beasts arising out of the sea. And these beasts have different forms, but they are similar in nature that they, they are wicked and, and destructive. And then Daniel sees um, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne judging everyone. And someone who looks like the Son of Man or a, or a mortal person is raised up on high and given all power and dominion. Um, so you can see just, just from this brief introduction how similar these dreams are. And they're worth taking uh, together because, not only because uh, they're thematically similar, but because Jesus himself would have studied these dreams and in fact made reference to, um, well, let, let me put it this way, one of Jesus' most common appellations for himself, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. So we have evidence that Jesus was uh, not only a student, but a huge fan, let's say, of the book of Daniel and considered it prophetic and um, even used it on the day of his crucifixion. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go. So this chapter begins with uh, Nebuchadnezzar being troubled in his dreams. And he's, uh, he, can't, he wakes up, but he, he knows he's had a troubling dream and he knows uh, somehow he has this feeling that this dream has been extremely significant. And I think there are probably many of you listening who've had uh, a similar experience. You're, you, you've, you've had a dream and you think, gosh, there was something different about this one. It, it means something. It's, uh, I've got to figure out what this means because um, it was more than just a dream. I've talked to many friends, at least, who've had that experience. Uh, well, 
not only did he have that feeling, but he also couldn't remember the dream. Now, the king had uh, something that you and I don't have. He had a lot of magicians and sorcerers and astrologers and Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans was uh, an ethnic group within the Babylonian Empire, and they had been Uh, early on adopted into the highest echelons of the Babylonian government. And so Chaldeans was another word for almost saying elites. And several times throughout the chapter, the the different words for a knowledgeable person uh, are given. And the magician and sorcerer, uh, this is King James translator's way of saying people with secret knowledge. And a lot is made in this chapter of secret knowledge. What What does secret knowledge mean? Now, in our world, we don't, um, the, it's, secret knowledge is not as um, important a subject as it was, as it has been throughout human history. And the simple reason for that is we live in a time when knowledge is shared. Uh, and, and that is a fairly recent innovation. Uh, it come, it's come about because of a few things. The printing press, the, let's call it the patent office or the idea of patents, and the scientific method. Right? These are all ideas, or these are meta-ideas, these are methodologies in which you share ideas to contribute to the knowledge uh, of the general human race as a whole, rather than hoarding it to yourself. Now, um, if, you, if you were in a company, for example, and you had a, let's say you were with Intel, and you, you're figuring out a new way to make a computer chip smaller, there are two ways you can protect that knowledge. You you spend a lot of time and money making, uh, creating this knowledge or discovering this knowledge, and you want to. It costs you a lot of resources, and so you want to get your resources back out of it. If everybody shared the knowledge, then uh, you would have no motivation to to do so much research. And in today's world, you can make that knowledge publicly available, and then you say you file a patent, which means. I'm the only person who can use this knowledge to make money for a limited time, but everybody has the knowledge. And the other way you can protect that knowledge is by what's called a trade secret, where you carefully protect who has access to it, and you swear these people to secrecy, and nobody, the general public at large, doesn't know how you're doing it. And so uh, this kind of thing works for, let's say, it wouldn't work for a computer chip, because anybody can take your computer chip, chip and put it under a microscope and examine it, so you need to patent that thing. But let's say the, uh, the recipe of Coca-Cola, that's a trade secret. It's something that's protected. Coca-Cola doesn't want everyone using its recipe. And uh, so they, they don't make it public, and not a lot of people need to know it. And uh, if, you, if you can imagine the, the way that ancient knowledge worked was 100% trade secrets. If you can imagine a world in which nobody shares knowledge, then you, can, then you can start to understand what kind of a world it was that the Babylonians or every, every ancient civilization lived in. Any knowledge that was discovered had to be discovered afresh in each generation because everyone hoarded it and kept it secret. It was the, it was the entire basis of the power of a king, for example, was how much his magicians knew. And one of the titles of Daniel, and, and we'll see why, became the Revealer of Secrets. And so this title, the, a person who can reveal secrets, was someone who had wisdom that, that was understood to come from beyond this world. And so what happened uh, early in the story is Nebuchadnezzar calls together these wise people who are supposed to know all these things. They have secret knowledge. That's why they were called magicians, astronomers, Chaldeans, and astro- or, sorry, astrologers, and sorcerers. 
right? He wants them to reveal the secret knowledge. And he says to him, you know what? I can't remember my dream, but I need you to tell me the dream. And then I need you to tell me what it means because I know it was important. And uh, obviously, as you might expect, the the uh, wise men of Nebuchadnezzar, they look at him uh, a little bit quizzically and they say, what? You, you want us to tell you what you dreamed? Okay, uh, let the king tell his wise men the dream and then we will tell him the interpretation thereof. And the king says, uh, no, no, now I can tell you're stalling. Uh, in fact, if you won't tell me what my dream was, so that I can know your interpretation is correct, then not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to I'm going to cut you into pieces, and your houses will be made a dung heap. Your your families, everything you know, will be destroyed. This was this is <laughs> this is what kind of a king Nebuchadnezzar was. He he wakes up in a bad mood. He has a bad dream, and people die, and so the word goes out. They of course are unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. So the word goes out all, not only the people that were there in the room, but Nebuchadnezzar sends out the decree, all wise men in the kingdom are to be destroyed. And so this is how word reaches Daniel. Daniel, and he says, sorry, I got Samuel and Daniel mixed up. Daniel uh, gets word. King Nebuchadnezzar has sent out a decree, all wise men are to be killed. And so that means you, Daniel, let's go. Now, uh, we wouldn't be uh, hearing the story, unless Daniel had had a different response, he says, "Now wait a minute. Uh, I'm. Why don't you send to the king and tell him that I'm absolutely going to come in? What What other answer are you going to give? Right? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot. I'm absolutely going to come in and tell him what his dream was and what it means. Uh, but I need a little time. And so Daniel uh, goes to his friends, and we know these friends. They're the same friends from the first chapter who were." Uh, who with Daniel refused the king's food, the king's meat. And then in chapter three, they refused to worship the king's image. Uh, in chap- here in chapter two, he goes to them and he says, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, will you pray with me? Will you ask God with me to reveal what the king's dream was? And then uh, the chap- chapter two reports that Daniel had a night vision. The- he had a dream of his own. And he wakes up in the morning and he knows... Uh, he knows exactly what the king's dream was. Now, here in uh, in the in our Latter Day Saint scriptures and in our uh, King James translation of of Daniel chapter two, we don't have the indentation that would indicate what follows is poetry. But um, here in uh, Daniel chapter two, in verses twenty through twenty three, these are. These are four, Daniel spends four verses thanking God for what happens. And uh, we can read it in, in the King James Version. But I almost want you to, well, I definitely want you to imagine that these verses were indented like poetry. But I almost want you to imagine as if they were sung. Almost as if this is a musical. This is where all the characters start poking their heads out of windows and dancing around and sync together, chore- choreographed and... Uh, doing barrel rolls and springing out and saying, you know, bonjour, because uh, this is a way that, if you'll notice in these four verses, the action of the story kind of stops right here. And it's not an accident that this happens. This is a way for the author of the book of Daniel to point out, okay, I am now giving, this is almost like an Aesop's fable. I'm giving away the moral of the story right here. So one of the ways you can know when there's poetry is when there's a lot of repetition, 
When you hear the same idea expressed over and over again, this is a Jewish, this is a very Jewish way of, of communicating superlatives. It's a way of emphasizing a point, and it's also poetic. So we'll just read these four verses. Daniel answered and said, uh, this is after Daniel gets the answer from God about what the uh, dream was, answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might and hath made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. So the hard part is over. Uh, this is actually, from this point on, the, the, the ending of the story is never in doubt. So this is interesting. When you, when you read a story, most, most stories, if they're well written at least, they leave the, the outcome in doubt until the very end. You're thinking, gosh, is he going to live or is he going to die? We know right now that Daniel is not going to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar because it's been revealed to him. So it must, the story must be about something else. And exactly what that is, is what's going to be revealed to us. So, but the point right now is that Daniel has just revealed the theme that this entire chapter is going for. And there are a couple of things here that are worth repeating. One, in verse 22, uh, Daniel says, He revealeth the deep and secret things. So this, this title, first of all, the, the power that all these magicians and sorcerers were aspiring to, the revealer being a revealer of secrets, and the title that Daniel had later because of the events here in chapter 2. For, throughout his life, Daniel was known as the revealer of secrets, which is the, the wisest a wise man could be. And uh, it's like somebody who has all these trade secrets, this secret knowledge, and yet is willing to teach it instead of hoarding it. It's someone who is not only wise himself, but a distributor of wisdom. You can understand how important that would have been. Uh, and, and here's Daniel saying, God is the ultimate distributor of wisdom. He's the revealer of secrets. And secondly, Daniel says, verse 21, he changes the times and seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Uh, Daniel's saying, God, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has, has sort of gotten the wrong idea that he's in charge because he's the king. Uh, and here's Daniel saying, God is the one who sets up a king and removeth him. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go. So Daniel has this vision and now he's ready. And he presents himself before King Nebuchadnezzar and he's standing before him and he says, uh, as, you, as a, any wise person was, O king, live forever. Uh, and then he begins to explain, he says, and, and something interesting happens here right at the beginning. Daniel doesn't say, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I, w- I was worried about your dream and I was thinking about you, you know, and I prayed a little bit and then it was revealed to me and now I'm going to tell you what your dream means. No, Daniel gets all the glory to God and he says, God is now going to reveal to you what your dream was. And he even goes the extraordinary extra step of saying, um, God, oh, and I think I, I, I think I said the wrong verses. It's not 28 to 30 where uh, Daniel gives thanks. It's 20 to 23. Uh, so in 28 to 30, it's Daniel saying, 
God is making it known unto you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's not making it known unto me. I'm not the one who, I'm not the gatekeeper of God's secret knowledge. God himself is willing to reveal this. And the reason he's revealing it unto you is because he wants you to know what your dream means. And he, yeah, and he goes the extraordinary extra step of saying, there's nothing special about me as the revealer of this knowledge. It's all from God. Which is, um, even among prophets, now you remember when Moses, Moses got in trouble, in fact he was forbidden from entering the promised land for taking credit, or so we are told in the in the book of Exodus, for one of the miracles that he performed, which was to smite the rock and then water comes out. And when he says, what would you, that I should smite the rock and, and bring water to you? And God chastised him very severely for that, even just that one misspoken sentence which was him taking credit for a miracle that he performed under the direction of God. And here's Daniel saying, it's not me. There's nothing special about me at all. I prayed to God, but he's the one who's revealing this knowledge. So even among prophets, this level of humility is quite um, extraordinary. And uh, so then Daniel gives him the the interpretation that we talked about. And, and, he, and he tells him what the dream is, right? So the the, the first part of this image, he sees this giant statue, and it's a beautiful statue, and the first part of it is made out of pure gold, and the head and the shoulders are made out of gold, and Daniel says, this is a kingdom, this is a large and powerful kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, you are the king of kings, and he even tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are, you rule over the the fish in the sea and the, and the men who are within your kingdom and you rule over the the fowls in the air. Now, uh, this is language that we hear later on in the book of Revelation. These two books are actually uh, quite similar. They're both apocalyptic and which uh, actually means revelatory. So we, we, we think of apop- apocalyptic as talking about the end of the world, but an apocalypse is any sort of revelation of hidden knowledge, uh, which should be a phrase that is now very familiar to you. So uh, Daniel is saying that you are the king of kings, which uh, a ti- is a title of God, and you rule, you have dominion, and you are this image. You are the tselem, which is Hebrew for image. The statue, another word for the statue is an image. It can be translated either way, but the original word is tselem. You are the tselem of God. You rule because you are in the image of, image of God. This is a very uh, deliberate allusion to something that would be very familiar to Hebrew readers, which is the, uh, the initial, the first chapter of Genesis. So in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, uh, I believe it's 27, where, uh, and 28, where, where men are described as having dominion. God says unto man, first, first in uh, verse 27, God created man in his own image, created he him, male and female created he them in his own selim. And then he tells them, he says, uh, be fruitful, increase in number, go forth, have dominion, rule on the earth. Um, and in the King James Version, the, the word is, the word, the phrase is have dominion over all the beasts of the field, all the fowls of the air. So God's method of, or, or, or God's original commandment was, I want you to rule over the earth. Now, we don't think in those terms these days. Uh, we think of stewardship, but, but God was saying, rule the earth. 
rule the earth because you're in my image and, and because ruling is what I do. You are to be engaged in my work, which is to rule with righteous dominion over the earth. Okay, so this is the same idea that the, the writer of the book of Daniel is, is trying to get across, is here is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of kings, and he is also ruling, and he's also the image of God. Uh, so th- this is a very uh, deliberate parallel that is being drawn. Now, what is the difference? Do we have any indication already in this chapter what kind of a king Nebuchadnezzar is? What did Nebuchadnezzar do right at the beginning of the chapter? Well, uh, the first thing he did was he had a dream, prophetic dream. So far, so good. That's something that a, a righteous man might do. How does he react? He immediately tells the people around him, his wisest people. He says, if you can't tell me what's going on, I'm going to kill you. And not only am I going to kill you, but it's the worst possible death you can imagine, and it's going to affect everyone around you. Everything you love is going to be destroyed. Is this what God intended when he commanded Adam and Eve to rule the earth? Obviously not. This is the, there's such a huge contrast between the way Nebuchadnezzar is ruling and the way God wanted man to rule. Right, the way God, and you can go back and, and uh, review the book of Genesis, and we'll talk a little bit about um, some modern revelation on the idea of how it is that God wants us to rule. He still wants us to rule, by the way. It's a commandment that's never been rescinded, just like the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. The commandment to rule has never been rescinded, but he wants us to do it differently, obviously, extremely differently from the way Nebuchadnezzar does it. Well, Daniel continues his interpretation of the dream, and there are other materials. There's a, there's a chest of silver, and then uh, the materials get more and more base, as you might call them, uh, the base metals, as it goes down. The bron- there's bronze, and, and then the legs are iron, the feet are iron mixed with clay. And the interpretation is that these are successive kingdoms, and as you go from the head down to the feet, uh, you're traveling forward in time. So Nebuchadnezzar is right now today, and then the next kingdom that follows is going to be a little bit less uh, pure, let's say, or less refined, less valuable, less precious. Um, and then uh, as as it gets down to the iron, the iron legs are uh, is a strong kingdom. Just as iron breaks those things that it comes in contact with, this kingdom will break the things that it, it break its opponents. And the iron mixed with clay, Daniel informs us, means that this kingdom will be divided. Even in, within its own people, they'll try to unite them, but uh, they'll never truly be united. Now, um, I think this is an appropriate time to talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the book of Daniel. So, a, a very probably the most prevalent scholarly view of the book of Daniel is that it was written hundreds of years after the time period that it depicts. And in fact, there's some pretty good evidence, uh, historically, linguistically, that this is the case. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not going to, to say one way or the other, obviously, I don't know. Um, but there are intelligent people that believe that Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius of Persia. And there are also people, very intelligent people, who spent a lifetime studying this, who believe that the book of Daniel was written hundreds of years later. Why does this matter? Well, the, if the, the, there are several visions in the book of Daniel that purport to prophesy the future. 
And some of those visions have very specific and uh, very unambiguous details, let's say. And uh, after the, the, the entire last part of the book of Daniel is Daniel prophesying about the next few hundred years. And so one theory is that this was a prophecy written after the fact to kind of explain what had happened to the Jews over the last few centuries. It was written, it's, it's a history written as if it were prophecy in order to cast the people of Israel, the Jewish people, in a starring role in, the, in God's plan for what was coming up. This matters because a lot has been made of trying to figure out what the individual interpretations are in the figures introduced in the book of Daniel. So um, we talked a little bit about what the, uh, what the beasts are or what the images are in chapter 7, and they're beasts. But similarly, the, there are depicted several successive empires of the powers of men and then their destruction by the power of God. And if you, if you can remember from the New Testament, the Jews were extremely violently even opposed to their domination by the Roman Empire. And a big part of the reason for that was the book of Daniel. Uh, in fact, Josephus recorded that the main reason, one of the main reasons, or one of the main justifications for their armed revolts and their uh, continued rebelliousness, uh, the nation of Israel, their rebelliousness against Roman occupation was that they believed that God had chosen them to triumph, that the, the Roman Empire was this empire that was the feet of clay mixed with iron, and that they were the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Uh, so I bring all this up to help you and me avoid a, what you can now see is, has been a common, I don't want to say mistake, but uh, has, has been a common tendency throughout the history of the believers of the Bible, and especially the book of Daniel, which is to say we are right now the ones that this is talking about. And therefore, uh, the, the rulers that we don't like or the powers that we are opposed to are the feet of clay and, bron- uh, of clay to, clay and iron. And the organization that we're a part of is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, more about um, uh, another way to think about this as we go on. So... Uh, Daniel finishes telling Nebuchadnezzar the, the interpretation of this, this statue. And then he says, okay, and then what you saw was, you saw a stone cut out of the mountain, as I said, without hands. Uh, let's examine that for a minute. So cut out of the mountain without hands actually is interpreted several different ways. That's the literal translation. But a, a, maybe a more accurate way to put it into modern usage is without, without human hands. Or you might, the way you might phrase something like this is by no means that anyone could see or by no, by no visible agency. A stone was cut out of the mountain and we didn't see how it was done. Uh, so I think a very appropriate way to translate it is without human hands. Nobody saw how it was done. Nobody could know how it was done. But the stone was cut. So there was some agency at work, just not human agency. It was done by means that no one could understand and yet it was done. It wasn't just an accident. It didn't just fall off because the word is cut, not, 
not broken off. Okay, so this stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolls down and destroys the image and pulverizes it, and then and it's completely turned to dust by this huge stone crushing it. And then wind blows and the dust is gone, and the kingdoms of men are utterly forgotten, right? That's the idea. And then this stone rolls on and eventually fills the whole earth, and we're not given any more details about that. But to me, it was very reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision. And these are contemporary visions. There's no idea of which came first, but it was probably Daniel's that came first because Ezekiel gives us a timeline of his vision of the temple. And specifically, I'm talking about Ezekiel's vision of the river. And he said that there's this river flowing out of the temple. If you, if you listen to our lesson a couple of times ago, uh, this little stream flows out under the door of the temple and then it goes on and it, it's up to my ankles. And then, you know, he walks a few cubits, a hundred cubits farther along or a thousand cubits. And uh, gosh, it's now it's up to my knees and now it's up to my waist. And now I can't, now I have to swim. It's so big. And the question that you're asking yourself as you read this then was, how can a river just grow? Rivers don't grow. Uh, if there's no, and there was no mention of any tributaries flowing into this river. So it was a stream and it became a mighty river and we have no idea how. This is very similar. Rocks don't grow. Rocks break apart. Rocks get smaller. They're worn down by wind and weather and ice and snow and, and uh, they're, but they don't get larger. Nobody, I've never heard of anybody observing a rock grow. And yet here's a rock, just like a river, it grows by itself, but it grows not just to uh, become a river large enough to bring life everywhere it goes and restore the dead sea to life. It grows to the point where it fills the entire earth. So this rock becomes a huge mountain that eventually all earth uh, is, is part of. And then he says, this is the kingdom of God. So the, the, now the contrast, now the lesson is complete. Daniel is saying that the kingdoms of the earth are going to be of temporary duration. They're powerful, they're mighty, they're, some of them are made of wonderful materials, amazing to look upon, and the entire statue is, is quite imposing and powerful looking. And it exercises dominion for a time. But eventually it will be crushed, and that's the word destroyed or crushed or broken in pieces, depending on how it's interpreted. And then it will be turned to dust. Now, this is a violent uh, collision. And so uh, the, the Jewish resistance, you might call it, they, uh, and there, there was an entire sect devoted to military resistance, the Sicari or the dagger people, uh, devoted to military resistance of Roman rule. And they were, they were very big on the interpretation of Daniel chapter 2 as a violent collision between the kingdom of God and the, and the, kingdom of the kingdoms of this world and this, and this statue. And so my question that I, that I think we should ruminate upon is, do we really believe that this collision is meant, we are meant to take this as a violent collision. Uh, as, my, as the beginning of my answer, I, I want to go back to one of the first lessons we had on the podcast, which was the book of Abraham. And if you remember Abraham at the beginning of the book of Abraham, what he wants is to have great knowledge. And in fact, he wants to be a revealer of hidden things. 
It doesn't say that explicitly, but later on we get we get that idea, and later on it's confirmed. Um, Abraham wants to discover secrets, and he wants to be, as he puts it, a prince of peace. And we talked about what it meant to be a prince of peace, and we contrasted that at the time with what it meant to be a prince of war or a prince of this world, which is that you rule by force. And what Abraham did was he traveled from Ur to Haran, and there he, uh, the at least we have records not in the Bible, but in other legendary sources that he amassed quite a following through preaching. And this is one of the ways that, that Abraham became a prince of peace. He convinced other people not to follow him because they had to, but to want to follow him because they trusted him, because the words that he had made them happy, uh, because he bought, he brought them the true gospel. And that was the way that Abraham became a prince of peace. So it was his it was his desire to be a prince of peace. And as we know, this is from Isaiah. This is the one of the titles of Christ, the Prince of Peace. And uh, we don't often think about what it means, but the the idea that this rock cut out of the mountain with hand, without hands has a violent confrontation and then crushes through, uh, you know, nuclear holocaust or whatever whatever means that you can think of through war. It crushes the kingdoms of this earth. I think is a little bit of a mistaken read of how this of how this uh, rock rolls over the statue. Um, the idea of the statue being broken in in pieces and then turned to dust. There are times when this is a violent image, and we'll t- and we'll talk about Daniel chapter seven right now. Um, when there when something is trampled, this is violence, right? So the beasts of Daniel chapter seven. So here's Daniel years later has a similar vision to the one that Nebuchadnezzar has. And he's reporting this vision and says uh, he actually, he was he was very distraught by this vision to the point where he didn't feel like he could report it to anyone. He didn't even want to talk about it. But the vision was, he saw the winds blowing upon the deeps and these and these four mighty beasts arose. The first one was in the shape of a lion and the and it had wings of eagles, and then the, the, the next two beasts had different, or the next two, yeah, beasts had shapes of different animals, and they, they were a mixture of, of different animal shapes as they come out of the deeps. And then the fourth beast is sort of an archetype. It's not even given a shape, but it is the super beast. It has, it has teeth, and it has claws, and it has wings, and it has horns. And it is so powerful that it tramples and destroys the the people its subjects and those its victims um and then uh and then daniel is given the interpretation these are four mighty kings um by which we i think we can also take to mean these are similar to what nebuchadnezzar saw these are four kingdoms or or dynasties or emperor empires um and again if the book of Daniel was written by Daniel himself or right around the time contemporary with Daniel by one of his scribes uh, from Daniel's own mouth, then the interpretate then we, then we can take these and take the the details and interpret them very literally and we can I think it would be a profitable exercise to say which you know which empire in world history, uh, would it lines up exactly with the details that Daniel has talked about. However, 
Here's here's one of the, another reason why it's an important question. If let's say Daniel recorded this this uh, vision in some way, or it became an oral tradition, and then uh, uh, three hundred years later it was written down, you know, a hundred years, one hundred fifty years before Christ. Um, if it's an oral tradition, it might be very tempting for somebody committing this for the first time to paper, to say, you know, what were the details of that vision? Uh, you know, this fourth beast to me really resembles the king Antiochus, who was a very wicked king who was probably the most oppressive to Jews that they'd yet known. In fact, he forced them to perform abominations right on the Temple Mount, and he would kill them for, as, as had happened before, but in, in worse ways, he would kill them for worshiping Yahweh and for uh, very common uh, worship behaviors that the Jews had. And he was the king of the the territory of Israel. So they were being oppressed right in their own land. Um, so there are people, there are scholars who believe that the book of Daniel was written down during or just after the time of Antiochus. And therefore, it is uh, reasonable to think that some of these details were altered to resemble, so that the, so that this super beast, this fourth beast resembles Antiochus. And then the later, uh, the later visions of Daniel were also perhaps skewed, not altered per se, maybe, but biased or skewed to resemble Antiochus, uh, which is one of the reasons why it's dangerous for us to say, gosh, this, uh, this fourth beast or the, these feet of iron and clay, they really resemble what I'm seeing, right? I think a, a more profitable way to, or a, um, yeah, I think profitable is the right word. A more profitable way to read these prophecies is to look at the patterns, the the common themes around the beasts and the this image, and say, what can we notice about the powers of this world? Okay, we'll get back to that in a moment. But um, so we're still in Daniel chapter seven, and then what happens is this this super beast, the fourth beast, is trampling wherever he goes, and he he bites people, and then he. Uh, kills them, you know, by biting them, and then tramples on them and and crushes the remains. Now, this is undeniably violent imagery. Uh, and then what happens? One of these, one of the people, or or somebody who looks like the the King James translates it, uh, the likeness of the Son of Man. Somebody in the likeness of the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man in the Old Testament language means, um, you you might remember Jeremiah is called the Son of Man. It, they're saying, or Ezekiel's called the son of man when an angel talks to him, son of man, come with me. He's saying, mortal man, why don't you come with me? So what uh, Daniel is reporting is somebody who looked exactly like a human being. Someone who was in the likeness of a person all of a sudden was elevated. And you can you can read uh, in Daniel chapter seven, you can read this idea that uh, someone in the likeness of the son of man uh, in verse 13, a, amid the clouds and and joined this this being the ancient of days who was sitting on a throne and then he was given power and dominion that lasted forever so uh the what daniel the vision of daniel is predicting is that a human person would have so much power and would have such dominion that it would never be taken away and the there was a specific phrase that was used to talk about him, and it was the son of man. 
And Jesus, so Jesus was often called the Messiah by those around him. Um, And that's the word Christ as well. So Peter said, um, Jesus said, who, you know, who do men say that I am and, and who do you say that I am? Peter said, well, I know that you're the Christ or you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And um, Jesus said, blessed are you, you know, flesh and blood hath, hath not revealed it to you. But he didn't say, you're right, I am the Messiah. He, that was a title that he accepted when it was applied to him. But the title that Jesus chose for himself and applied to himself, most often, most consistently throughout the Gospels, was the title, the Son of Man. In other words, a, a mortal man, somebody who looked like a person. But it was phrased that specific way for a reason, and it was to evoke the image of the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7. So the, And Daniel chapter 7, tied as it is to Daniel chapter 2, is also meant to evoke, the title Son of Man is also meant to evoke this rock, this, this stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Now, what was the first thing that Christ said when he started preaching? If you, if you think that God... Uh, that Christ started saying right away, okay, I want you to love one another or uh, do unto others, right? You've got part of the truth. But Christ's most important and prevalent message right at the start was, repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. That was Christ's message. That was the good news. That was the gospel, was that the kingdom of God was at hand. And who did he talk to? Who is Christ speaking to? Immediately, he was talking to the opposite of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you might say, anyone who was powerful. He said, blessed, in his, first, in his first large public appearance, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and, and uh, by extension, justice, blessed are those who have been mistreated in this world. Blessed are those who've been injured. Blessed are those who feel like you're outsiders. All of you people who are suffering, all of you people who are on the receiving end of the miserable treatment of the kingdoms of this world, blessed are you, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus was drawing a very powerful contrast between the way that man rules and the way that God rules. And this is, this is the message of Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel, uh, when he says, um, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are the tselem of God. You are the image of God meant to rule, the king of kings meant to rule over man and beast and bird. He's drawing a very powerful contrast because Nebuchadnezzar woke up that morning and threatened people with death. This is what, this is what happens with earthly powers. Earthly powers are corrupt because earthly powers, mortal men, mortal kingdoms, they rule by force. And even today, if you were to study uh, political science, for example, or, or law enforcement, you would learn that government has a monopoly on force. And it's for a reason. It's for a good reason. And that is because if somebody mistreats you or you catch them, let's say you come out after a concert and someone is breaking into your car, you're not allowed to pick up a tire iron and hit that person on the back of the head with it. What you're allowed to do is call the police, and the police will detain that person and arrest him, and and uh, we would presume it's a him, and hopefully reclaim your property and try to get from his, his, 
whatever he owned uh, compensation for the damage he'd done to your car. But you're not allowed to go to the bank and seize his assets. You're not allowed to uh, physically beat him up and take his wallet. Um, now, I'm not saying you might not do that out of anger, but you would be what you would be doing would also then be against the law because the government has a monopoly on the use of force. And in our modern philosophy, in our modern political science, and in fact, throughout history, that's what government has been. Government equals force. That's what man's government is, is a manifestation of the use of force. It is taking other people's choices away. Now, the, it's important that government is bound by laws, and so it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen arbitrarily. And hopefully it doesn't happen according to any one person's whim, the way it did with Nebuchadnezzar. The more lawful and the less corrupt it is, the more it happens according to laws. Nevertheless, let's say a government is 100% just and laws are applied both benevolently and equally, let's say. And so the government, the, all the judges are wise and all the police are uh, unbiased, etc. That government would still be a government of force. And what do we know about God? God, and what do we know about his plan and the way that God rules the earth? God's entire plan and God's entire, the the fact that Christ had to come to earth and suffer and die for us, the whole reason behind all of this stuff is that our agency, our freedom to choose was so important to God that he was willing to go through all of that in order to preserve it. Did God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace? Did he prevent Nebuchadnezzar from throwing them in? Did God prevent Cain from killing Abel? Our agency is so important to God that he will allow things to go wrong in order to preserve that agency. That is the way that God rules. Now, that would lead to a lot of suffering on the part of a lot of innocence. And so, it's not that God's rule is the most uh, appropriate rule for the earth at this time. We live in a fallen world. However, God's rule is the best kind, but you have to be ready for it. Okay, so this is, this is an indication of what this stone rolling out of the mountain without hands means. It's not a violent confrontation, in my opinion. When the stone crushes the powers of this world, it's not a violent confrontation between the, the Latter-day Saints, for example, and, and there's an indication in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 65, verse 2. The, the, the stone, the gospel will go forth as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands will go forth and fill all the earth. And the implication taken from that by, by many Latter-day Saints is that the gospel is the stone. Well, the, the, the verse there doesn't specifically say this gospel is the stone. It says they will both go forth in the same way. Now, it might be that uh, the verse was meant to imply that the gospel is the stone that will, that will go forth and fill the earth, um, that the modern-day church will one day uh, be that very stone. My own interpretation of that verse is that the way of doing things of man is in direct conflict with how God would like things to be done. And what Daniel, what the, what Daniel chapter 2 is saying is the, the days are numbered when people will be ruled by force. When governments that rule by force and maintain their power through force will continue to govern upon the earth. 
But what happens? If you were to take force away, if you were to remove all government right now, you wouldn't have the this stone cut out of the mountain without hands filling all the earth. What you would have is anarchy. It would be even worse. It would be a worse form of this this statue. It would be an even worse beast arising out of the uh, arising out of the depths. So it's not a violent confrontation. What it is is God doing. If you remember in Isaiah. God saying, I will do a new thing. If you remember in Ezekiel, God saying, I'm going to take their stony heart and replace it with the heart of flesh, and I'm going to write my law upon it. So it's the same thing that God has been prophesying for centuries by this point. By the, book of Dan- by the time of the book of Daniel, God has been saying nothing, but I'm going to change their hearts. I'm going to eventually make them the temple. I'm going to write the law, the Torah, upon their hearts. And I'm going to accomplish my work by turning Israel into my temple. So that's the same, that is exactly the same event as this stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolling over this image. It means that people will no longer require that they're governed by the use of force. All right, right now what I want to do is uh, turn to a particular, to another section in the Doctrine and Covenants, a particular scripture, uh, which is Doctrine and Covenants 121. You've all read this a hundred times, but hopefully now um, some of these words will be more significant to you. We're going to start in verse 41. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Doesn't that sound like something different? Than this, than this image of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay? Doesn't it sound different than the beast trampling and chewing up its victims? Doesn't it sound more like the Son of Man uh, approaching the throne in the clouds or the mountain cut, or the stone cut out of the mountain without hands? Let's go back to verse 37. Let's go to 36. The powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. And we'll skip into the middle of 37. If we exercise or uh, control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. So now we'll read, uh, we'll read the final verse in this section. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee, forever and ever. Now, if you've read Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, especially Daniel 7, you will recognize that the dominion of the Son of Man was given unto him forever and ever. You will recognize this language. Almost almost certainly, this language is intended to come right out of Daniel's chap- uh, Daniel chapter 7. And we'll talk about, in just a minute, we'll talk about another scriptural passage that is a deliberate allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Now, first remember, Daniel chapter 2 was a dangerous chapter, right? This is a chapter that has inspired revolutions. It is a chapter that's, that implicitly says you are to resist the government that you are subject to. You are to resist man's government, or that's one interpretation of it. Um, but what it definitely means, what it means to you and me is we are to resist turning the, our government into an image of God. 
The government is not to rule as an image of God. We are to do what Daniel and his friends were doing, which is in chapter 1 we saw, they were to maintain their identity as believers, even though they're surrounded by Babylonian identity, language and customs and manners of dress. But when it came to something that was holy to them, in their case, it was the food that they ate, they were unwilling to bend. In other words, they, they didn't turn Babylon into their god. They weren't willing, first figuratively and then literally, to bow down to the god of this world. Instead, they were willing to die rather than do that. Without violent resistance, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before they were thrown into the furnace, they didn't say, we're going to fight you. They just said, you can throw us into the furnace. You're, you're capable of doing that, but what we're never going to do is bow down before your image. And that's the very, that's the very uh, pattern that Daniel hinted at in, Dan, in Daniel chapter 2. So Jesus... Uh, let's now let's let's go to let's discuss John chapter 16 and uh, we'll tie it back into Daniel 2 in a moment. Jesus in, in John 16 Jesus tells his disciples, look, I want you to have peace. I'm leaving you with peace. Uh, not as the world gives you peace, but I, I'm giving you peace in my own way. Don't be afraid of the world because I've overcome the world. This is what he told them, and the, this is what he told them at the time. And the word "overcome" also means conquered, right? I have conquered the world. What Jesus was saying is, I uh, I have rolled over this image. I've crushed the image and broken it in pieces and pulverized it. And the wind is now going to blow it to the winds. It, it won't even be recognizable anymore. Everyone will forget it, forget about it. What happened immediately after John chapter sixteen? Jesus walks out goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. So if you had experienced that as one of the disciples of Jesus, you would think, what? Jesus has overcome? He's conquered the world? In what way is he like the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, rolling over this image? Because it looks to me an awful lot like he himself was just conquered. He was killed. All right, here's another indication of what Jesus meant. He's in, the, he's, this is Matthew now, we're in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. And they're saying, okay, what would you, why don't you just tell me, Caiaphas, the, the high priest, the, the, one of the most powerful men in all of Israel and the, one of the most wicked, right? He's the one that was threatened by Jesus because he had the most to gain by this corrupt uh, trade that was happening in the temple when uh, the money changers would charge people for all of their sacrificial animals. So he was almost like a mob boss. He was like the dawn of this underground uh, Cosa Nostra who was who was threatened by some, some do-gooder exposing all of this stuff. And here he is spitting in Jesus's face and plucking out the hair of his beard and saying, and mocking him and saying, you know, prophesy if you're God, if you're a prophet of God, why don't you tell why don't you prophesy and say who it was that smote you? And he says to Jesus, "Okay, here you are in front of everyone. Why don't you just tell us if you're the Messiah?" And Jesus's response is very very uh interesting. He says, "Well, apparently you say that I am. Apparently that's what that's your claim. 
right? Jesus doesn't deny it, and he doesn't confirm it. He says, apparently that's your claim. But let me tell you what I can say. Hereafter, now in the, in the King James Version, we have hereafter. But one way you can read this is from now on, or from this moment on, starting right now, you will see the Son of Man lifted up in the cloud, right? You will see him on the right hand of God. This is a very, very deliberate allusion to Daniel chapter 7. So here's Jesus saying, I am this, this figure who was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And he's not among, uh, he's, uh, he's not talking to Herod Antipas as he was earlier. He's not talking to Pilate in this, in this chapter. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. These are people, many of whom would have the entire Torah memorized word for word. They know Daniel chapter 7. So when he says, you'll see the Son of Man raised up on a cloud, they know exactly what he's saying. It would be as if I said to you, I, uh, hello, I am Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? You would know I was saying, I was pretending, I was assuming in that moment the character of Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride. You know exactly where it came from. And I am putting you in a role as well. The person I'm talking to, I'm putting you in the role of Count Rugen, the six-fingered man, the evil person who struck his father down. He's been seeking revenge for 20 years. These were people who were very steeped in the language of the Old Testament, and they knew the book of Daniel backwards and forwards. And so when Jesus said, hereafter, or from now on, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man raised up on high and taken up into the cloud, then uh, they, they knew, not only is Jesus saying, I am the Son of Man, I'm this, I'm this person in a likeness of a human being who is, is to be given a dominion that will, that will last forever and ever. The other thing that Jesus was saying is, you are this beast, this fourth beast, the super beast. The beast is an archetype of the evil of this world. And what had they just done? They had, they had just decided to condemn a man whom they knew was innocent to death because they wanted to preserve their earthly power. They had proven that they were the beast. And here's Jesus calling them out on it. And he says, you are giving me right now. My, my kingdom starts today. You are giving me my dominion that will last forever. It's interesting that Daniel chapter 7 follows immediately another chapter in which someone who had said that they would never worship the God of this world was thrown to a beast in the form of a lion and through miraculous means was preserved. Daniel, in the, as we know, in the lion's den. And what happened to the priests that were uh, trying to see that Daniel got thrown into the lion's den? They were actually devoured by those lions. So Jesus is not only saying, you're the beast, I'm the son of man, but he's saying, we all know what happens to the beast. The beast is killed. The, be- the son of man is raised up on high. He's saying, you can kill me. And, and the super beast in Daniel 7 does trample, but he's eventually killed and the son of man has dominion forever and ever. And so they know exactly what the end of the story is. It's Jesus saying, there will be a reversal here. You just can't see it yet. I'm going to, you're, you are now giving me my royalty. Now think about it. When, did, when was Jesus crowned? When did he receive any sort of royal treatment? When did he get a royal robe? When was he lifted up on high? 
When was there a proclamation made, a sign created that said, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews? All of those things happened when he was being beaten and scourged and tormented and crucified. These things didn't happen by accident. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he made this allusion to Daniel chapter 7. He knew what was coming. He knew exactly when, how he would be crowned and how he would be lifted up. He knew that his kingdom was being not only figuratively, but literally created as he was being killed. So when Jesus said to his disciples, Fear not, for I have overcome the world. I've conquered the world. What he was saying was, when they conquer me, when they show, now now here's the key. When they show what they're made of by condemning not only an innocent man, but their Savior, the God of all, when they condemn me to die, they will be showing what they are. They will be displaying the difference between this tselem, this statue, this image made of, of gold, they will be showing the difference between the beasts and God. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he talked about baptism and he talked about the crucifixion. And he said uh, in verse, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, you were at one time spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were Gentiles without the law, but God has now brought you to life with Christ. God forgave us all our sins In verse 14, he canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, there is a pathway you can follow. It's called the Via Dolorosa. And it has the points of the cross. There, there are 12 waypoints, points that you cross where Christ did uh, a certain thing. Here's where he stumbled and fell to his knees. Here's where Simon took the cross from him. Here's where uh, he was comforted by the women. And you follow this Via Dolorosa through Jerusalem and you end up in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Christ, uh, in, according to legend, was crucified and buried. Of course, it's not the exact path that Jesus followed, but there was a path that he followed. And that's what what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about his victory procession, which was Christ carrying his cross to the place where he would be killed. And Paul is saying he made a public spectacle of the powers of this earth. In other words, he exposed them for what they were. They were killing an innocent man, and he showed it. He, he, to, he told everyone exactly what they were made of. This was the moment that the stone cut out, the, out of the mountain without hands rolled over this image of the kings of the earth and absolutely crushed it to dust. And that is the ultimate meaning of Daniel chapter 2. Now, of course, we want, we want also to know, is there a latter-day fulfillment? How does this prophecy, how does it apply to us today? There's obviously... Um, the, church, the restored church of Jesus Christ has a lot to do with this prophecy. And that, that's, that's apparent from uh, section 65 of the Doctrine and Covenants, among other places. How does it work? How, what does it look like for us? 
it's again, as as Christ showed us, it's not a violent confrontation between the powers of this earth and and God's power. It's not God showing up in a cloud or swallowing up evil people with an earthquake or with a flood. What it means is you and I allow God to accomplish his work, which is to change our hearts, which is to write his law upon our hearts and become the temple of God, meaning become shared space between man and God. We allow our hearts to be that temple where the presence of God can dwell. As we do that, this is a gradual process. It's not an instant when the rock rolls over the image. What it is is a gradual process. This stone is gradually growing. It's slowly growing as you and I become individual pebbles and attach ourselves to this rock. That's how the rock grows. It grows imperceptibly with each righteous choice that we make and each sin we repent of and each person we teach about what Jesus Christ taught us and each heart we change, including our own. This stone grows gradually and becomes heavier and heavier until its weight is such that no earthly kingdom, no earthly dominion can withstand it and is pulverized and crushed. And instead of a government of force, which is required to rule a people that uh, cannot be trusted to treat each other well, we no longer require such a government. We're no longer such people. We are ready to be ruled by absolute freedom where God never steps in and intervenes and there's no police, there's no courts, there's no prisons necessary because we've outgrown them. When that day comes, that's when that rock has filled the earth. We don't get to have God come and do this for us because that is not the way God works. God's, God is a prince of peace and his Dominion is forever and ever, and it flows to him without compulsory means. He can't extend to us a promise, of course he can't, that he hasn't already fulfilled himself. This is how God's kingdom and power flows to him. It flows without compulsory means. We know this. Everything about the plan of salvation points to this. And so God doesn't. God isn't going to impose his rule. Just as Jesus, Jesus Christ had conquered the earth without compulsory means. The, the day that he allowed them to conquer him was the day that he overcame them. And so we have a huge task before us, but it's a manageable one. We have to change the world, but it's manageable because we do it by changing ourselves. Our task is to change our own hearts, to open up that heart. And we don't even have to change our hearts. We pray to God that he will change our hearts. We just have to open it up and say, God, change my heart. Make me part of this stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Make me part of your new order. Create it within me. And eventually the earth cannot resist it. It will become so heavy that it will crush all powers, all earthly powers, and it will drive out all corruption before it. This is the very powerful lesson of Daniel chapter 2. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.